This is episode 112 with the performance nutrition lead for Canada basketball, a former strength coach, and the author of the new performance book, Peak, Dr. Mark Bubbs. Hey runners, welcome back to the Strength Running Podcast. I'm your host, Jason Fitzgerald, and we're getting into the fascinating topic of sports psychology today. But before we do get into this conversation, a few updates from Strength Running HQ. First, I will be at the U.S. Trail Running Conference in Estes Park, Colorado, this Saturday, October 12th. I'm participating in a coaching panel with Sandy Napaver and Colin McMahone, two coaches and trail runners here in Colorado. Now, if you're local, come on by. It's at a beautiful venue at the Stanley Hotel, which was the inspiration for Stephen King's The Shining. So it's a perfect pre-Halloween running experience. And of course, Estes Park is a beautiful mountain town here in the Front Range. Also on strengthrunning.com, I've published two articles that go into depth on foot and lower leg strength and mobility training. They're the last two current posts, so be sure to check those out. The topics are really important for injury prevention and helping you get the most out of your body while training. Finally, we have a new podcast sponsor. I'm excited to introduce you to Tagalong, which lets you find, hire, and train with pro athletes. They have more than 50 pros on their app, and you can train with them in person or consult with them if they're not local. Go to tagalong.pro slash podcast to learn more about them. All right, I'm excited to introduce you to Dr. Mark Bubbs. He's the performance nutrition lead for Canada Basketball, a certified strength and conditioning specialist, and the author of Peak, the new science of athletic performance that is revolutionizing sports. He's consulted with most professional sports leagues here in the U.S., including the National Hockey, Basketball, Football, and Basketball Leagues. He's also a certified member of the International Society of Sports Nutritionists and the National Strength and Conditioning Association. Our conversation today is focused on a whole variety of issues related to mastering your mindset, how to use mindfulness to improve your running, mindfulness tips and tricks, because it's not so easy in today's social media and iPhone culture, strategies for addressing negative self-talk, how mental and emotional health drives performance, and easy ways to get started with sports psych concepts. Without further delay, please enjoy my conversation with Dr. Mark Bubbs. Dr. Mark Bubbs, thank you so much for joining us today. Jason, I appreciate you uh, carving out some time to have me on. Thanks. Absolutely. And you have written uh, a hell of a book on performance. This is a book that covers so many different topics, and it touches everything from blood glucose to the microbiome to sleep hygiene uh, and so many other things, too. I mean, what what doesn't your book cover? <laughs> and. You know, you say that this is the new science of athletic performance, and I'd love to start there and talk a little bit about that. What is this new science? Is there a common theme that transcends the many different topics that you wrote about in your book? Yeah, I mean, it's fascinating science, you know, the science of sport, because even for myself, you know, 20 years ago doing my undergraduate degree in, in, in you know, pre-medical sciences, wondering, you know, I'm really interested in fitness, I'm really interested in nutrition, but there doesn't seem to be, you know, this is sort of like when the internet began, there doesn't seem to be a lot of fit, you know, going into doctor's offices, there wasn't enough time to use nutrition, and and there was obviously some nutrition in team sport, for sure, but it was still, you know, very small, and 
you know, when we look at the last decade or the last 15 years, it's uh, it's been an amazing explosion in terms of not only on the nutrition side, but even sports sciences at universities, you know, the investment in places like Australia and London. And, and actually there's a, you know, a society called the International Society of Sport Nutritionists uh, based in Florida. And, you know, the Dr. Jose Antonio, who started that up, mentioned that when they started that in the, in the mid-90s, you know, there was like two or three universities offering performance nutrition, you know, and now 20 some, some years later, almost every single university has sort of a nutrition-based course or performance nutrition. So, you know, that was definitely my passion. And, you know, the book has a has a nutrition slant on it, but we definitely, the other theme, if you will, that you, you mentioned there is this idea of expert generalism, you know, and something else that, again, when I was at university, I was, I wanted to think about, you know, patient health, athlete health, and, Again, this idea of what we're eating, you know, movement, lifestyle, even for the general public wasn't really, I mean, there was literature out there, but there wasn't really a focus on it. And then, so I took a, a series of courses which allowed you to sprinkle around in those upper sciences and take the biochemistries as well as the as the kinesiologies and that type of thing. So I was always the, you know, that, that one person in all the different upper level classes there. And it was just great to be able to synthesize some things, some common themes across this and it's really cool now because again, fast forward 20 years and a lot of these, you know, people I interviewed for the book, these sports science teams, whether it's team sport endurance, this idea of athlete health now is a huge, huge area. And this idea that if we can keep athletes healthy, right, we can really allow them to be able to achieve their potential when they're, when they're training and trying to perform. And I think that resonates for everyone, even if you're trying to perform your, you know, hit a personal best or, you know, or perform well at work or at home. I love that idea of expert generalism, and it reminds me of this podcast because I'm in such a great position because I get to interview people like you and registered dietitians and sports psychologists and elite level athletes. And I feel like, you know, getting such a, a good high level look at so many different aspects of performance really helps you understand some of the common themes and 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 principles that are true for you know everything whether it's psychology or nutrition or you know the training itself that goes into helping runners and you know it's it's funny that you talk about how these fields have really exploded over the last 10 years or so because I graduated college in 2006 and I I ran cross country and track and we didn't talk much about this stuff at all. We really Yeah, it's crazy, isn't it? Yeah, we didn't talk much about nutrition, which I think is very interesting at a at the collegiate level not to really you know, even meet with a dietitian or a nutritionist once over the four years that I was there. And of course, I'm not knocking the program at all. It's just kind of a sign of the times. And exactly. Now, you know, we're really getting into some of these things in a lot more detail. And we're realizing that there's so much opportunity for improved performance if you can get your nutrition right and get your mindset right and get, you know, all these areas of performance. And uh, I think one of those that I want to focus on in this conversation, because, you know, we could go in so many different directions in, in your book and you talk For about sure. so many fascinating things. I'm sure you don't want to spend uh, five hours on the podcast with me today, <laughs> but, <laughs> nice. you know, I, I want to focus on mindset and okay for this conversation. And, and in fact, you called the brain the ultimate performance resource in your book and you know, I think sports psychology is often the last frontier that runners want to explore for improvement, but it's arguably where 
much of the progress is going to come from. And so maybe we can start with mindfulness because you talk about mindfulness a lot in the book. What is yep. mindfulness in the context of running and what are some of its performance benefits? You know, what can runners expect if, if they can, you know, focus on this a little bit more in their training? Yeah, it's a very interesting area, you know, mindfulness and just the noise that's around us in today's environment, right? Daniel Goleman, who wrote Emotional Intelligence, talks about how we're in this epidemic of absence of attention, right? We're always doing something. We're checking our phone. Um, you know, I, I split my time between Toronto and Canada and London and the UK. And sometimes on a busy street, if you just sort of stand back and look at everyone, everyone's got their head down, looking at their phone, even even whilst walking. You know, one guy almost ran into me. He was riding his bike, looking at his phone. And so, you know, our attention's being drawn in so many different directions. And I think one of the reasons why people um, gravitate to things like even running is because it helps with things like mindfulness. You know, you, whether you put some music on and you, you, know, you sort of zone out to the rhythm of the running and the music, whether you, you know, simply focus on your breath, there's this attention to yourself, your body, how you're feeling, um, your, your breath that, that naturally people experience. And I think for a lot of people, I've had a lot of clients who maybe weren't or maybe they played team sports when they were younger. Maybe they weren't sort of avid runners. And then at 30s, 40s, 50s even, they sort of discover running as this way of really being able to tap into a lot of the mindset piece. And I think the mindset piece is, is really fascinating. You know, I was at a performance conference called Leaders in Performance where all the, you know, the major sports get together. And, and to a person almost, you know, the next frontier of performance was, you know, was the brain and, and this idea of belief and you know, things like the placebo effect, how do we sort of harness that? And I think, you know, the beauty of mindfulness is that we can start to make some, you know, we can start there, we can start with breathing. And I think when you're running, um, it's a natural place to be able to dig into that, whether you're, you know, just starting out and obviously experienced runners will, will be focusing on that a little bit more, but I think it's always a place that we can come back to, to really tap into that mindfulness. Um, because again, with, with life being so busy, it's really important to be able to focus your attention, you know, deliberately. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, I can, I can certainly see how the internet and social media and smartphones really hurts our ability to be mindful and to be able to focus on one thing for a long period of time. And I think any runner who's run a long race, whether that's a half marathon or a marathon, they understand that to run a really good endurance race like that, you have to be able to focus for hours at a time. And when you think about it, when else do you focus for hours at a time on one single task without any distractions or disruptions? It's it's almost unheard of today. Um, do you have any strategies for, for dealing with that, that constant uh, pull of our attention towards social media and our phone and, and all the little distractions that come from that? Well, that was, that's, that's sort of a million dollar question these days, isn't it? I mean, um, I think one of the things that we can tend to, maybe we don't realize is that, you know, people who are busy, people who are type A's, people who are naturally feel like they have good resilience. You know, if you're working 70 hours a week, that sort of stress is, is literally changing how the brain functions. So, you know, connections between, you know, the amygdala and the prefrontal cortex become weakened and we, we, we respond a little bit differently. We react more emotionally to things. Um, some great research at a University of Washington 
uh, Marcus Reichel identified the default mode network, which is effectively this idea that even when our, we're doing nothing, our brains are still really active, right? And and typically when we're when they're still really active when we're doing nothing, they're thinking about us, right? We're the star of our own movie. So the brain's always coming back to how I'm feeling, how I'm doing. And oftentimes that comes in a in a context of negativity as well, right? In terms of, you know, threats and, and things like that. So, you know, when you're busy, when we're working long hours, when we're training hard, it's sometimes difficult to to turn off some of those thoughts. Um, or to get down on yourself when the training's not going well or you don't have enough hours in the day. And so this is where it's fascinating to see what even the best of the best do, right? Uh, Serena Williams, arguably one of the greatest tennis players, female tennis players of all time. You know, you can see her between changeovers with her, you know, a little book, flipping the pages and reading, you know, positive affirmations. So just going back to some of these fundamentals that, you know, we can often take for granted because sometimes it can feel a little you know, a little strange to be maybe doing those types of things if it doesn't come naturally to you. But but being able to lay down those fundamentals, so whether it's, you know, positive affirmations, whether it's some of the mindfulness that we, you know, that we've talked about. And, you know, people can start very, very simply in terms of some belly breathing, you know, lying on the floor, putting a book or something on your belly, breathing in, having that book go up towards the ceiling, just becoming more aware of that. And sometimes that's a nice exercise to do actually away from running to kind of feel and experience those breaths when you're not active to, you know, to really cement those fundamentals. And, and then Kristen Neff's work around self-compassion is interesting too, because, you know, especially when I grew up, it was, you know, the coach yelled at you and you sort of cracked the whip. And, and then, you know, from that, from that negative talk, we kind of tried to get stronger. And these days it's with social media and everything else, you know, again, People can be pretty tough on themselves. The inner monologue can get pretty pretty nasty in spots. And and what I've been amazed at is, you know, working with all types of clients, all the way into sort of upper executives and all sorts of athletes and elite athletes. You know, that negative self talk can get pretty intense and pretty rough. And so it's interesting that we're always trying to look up. So from a distance, we might see somebody else and say, "Oh, they're achieving this," and "Geez, I'd like to get there," and they must have everything sorted out or feel great, but that person's still often looking up to what they can achieve again. And so in terms of a relative effect, you're, all, you're almost in the same shoes. You know, that person's still struggling with a lot of the things that, you know, you might be struggling with or I might be struggling with. And so I think that's a really interesting concept, just the humanness of that idea. But we've always got to be working on these, you know, on the, on the mindset, on things like positive self-talk, the mindfulness piece, and, of course, you know, if you can lay down some of those fundamentals and be consistent with them, it's amazing how that transfers so well to sport. And I think running in particular is a really fascinating area because, again, so much is based on the mindset when you get tired, fatigued, when your race plan doesn't go according to plan, and now all of a sudden there's a bit more adrenaline, thoughts are racing around. How do you react to that, right? And I think, I think that really helps and plays a big role if you can, if you can get, build some of those fundamentals. You know, one of the things I've been doing personally and advising some of my private clients on is to not listen to uh, music or a podcast when you're doing either a long run or one of your key priority workouts during the week. And, you know, for me personally, I, I went through this phase where I was listening to a lot of podcasts and music while I was running. And this mm -hmm. was most days of the week. And I found that when I stopped, 
it was really hard for me just to kind of let my mind wander while I was running. I felt distracted. I felt like I couldn't focus. And, mm. you know, because I, I, I know a little bit more about this, these topics, it made me very concerned. And so for a long time now, I haven't listened to a single podcast when I was running or uh, any music at all, because I, I felt like I was, I was very unsettled when I was out there running. And, and I felt like it was, it was, you know, the opposite of mental fitness. It was me just not having the tools to mentally grapple with whatever workout I was doing at the time. And, and it was very, uh, unsettling to me because, you know, that that's one of the things that, you know, if your confidence goes, or if you're not able to focus when you're running, how are you going to be able to put down a good workout or even a good race, which is even more stressful. And so that was very concerning to me. And it was something that, uh, I wanted to address very quickly, and I, and I think it's something that can really help runners because it's it's one of those things where you know we shouldn't be distracting ourselves from how we're feeling because how we're feeling and perceived exertion, you know, that's so important for the entire running process and learning what different paces feel like and and what fatigue feels like and how you respond to that. I just think there's so much value in that, and when you're constantly pulling yourself away from those inputs from your body and instead focusing on whether it's a podcast or, or a music. And by the way, runners should always listen to the strength running podcast when they're going to say, <laughs> of course, <laughs> balance, um, balance, right? Yeah. Uh, you know, it, that, that was so concerning to me that I wanted to just nip it in the bud so that I wasn't, you know, in that kind of, you know, a, a mentally inferior spot that I, that I thought I was in. I mean, that's a great observation. That's something that I've experienced as well. I see athletes and clients experience that. It's, you know, podcasts are amazing. There's so much information out there. We feel like we always want to be listening and learning. And then all of a sudden, there's just this constant noise going on in our in our minds. There's never these moments of downtime and peace when our, our brains can start to synthesize a lot of the information that we've learned. And there's a great book. Um, I believe he's a Norwegian explorer. And it's called, it's, it's a bunch of short little uh, stories and observations called silence in the age of noise i believe it's called erling Krag or kag from from norway and this guy you know spent 50 or 60 days trekking across the antarctic by himself so you know no no podcast no music just the sound of wind and um so it's obviously that's the other extreme but it's it's kind of interesting to read some of those things to be able to find out for all of us where's that balance because it is an interesting time that we almost have to program in doing nothing. Whereas before it kind of came naturally in terms of the ebbs and flows of your days, but now you almost have to schedule it in to say, uh, you know, I'm going to go out for a walk and I'm not going to look at my phone or listen to a podcast. I'm just going to, just going to take it all in. Or if I'm going to go for a run and yeah, just be, be tuned into my body and my breath, right? That's such a, a huge thing. And, you know, from running coaches and strength coaches as well, it's a big, big part of the, uh, you know, the performance process. Now you've talked about some belly breathing exercises. I mentioned how I just love to practice running without any other distractions, any inputs. What are some mm -hmm. other ways where we can kind of flex our mindfulness muscle and get better at it? Because I think a lot of people are in that position where they're used to constantly, 
either checking their phone or, or having music or having a podcast. And you're right. There's just so much information out there. And I think we're being subtly taught by the culture to always be improving and learning something. And, you know, we're learning animals. So let's, you know, take advantage of all these opportunities. And, you know, where's the balance? And what are some of the, the other things that we might do to practice mindfulness? Yeah, it's interesting to look at the research when they talk about things like mindful immersion, which, you know, if you remember the Karate Kid movies, you know, waxing the fence or buffing the car, it's this idea of when we're doing these really mundane tasks of really just, you know, doing the dishes, you know, how many people really love doing the dishes. But when you do those kind of tasks, really just immerse yourself in what you're doing, you know, just be able to block everything out that's going on. Because ultimately, that's what makes some of these sports that we love so beneficial, why people like to rock climb or run for long distances, is that we get into this zone where all of a sudden, all the noise in our life, the things we have to do at work, or the commitments that we have, for, for a moment there, we forget about those things. Or why people like to play pickup basketball or some of these sports, right? Because you just, you get into the flow. And I think if you can do that with some of the mundane tasks, it kind of helps because it gives it a bit more purpose. So, you know, even cleaning the house or doing the dishes, doing the laundry, um, is, is one way. They also talk about mindful awareness. And this one could be a challenge, but literally just sitting there, you know, cross-legged or any type of position, and just seeing how long you can sit there and do nothing and just let those thoughts kind of come in and go out and observe and feel your hips getting tighter or your back getting a little stiffer and, and all the little sensations that you get. You know, in, in talking to experts, you can start slow and sort of build up. You know, you don't have to feel like you have to dive in for 20, 30-minute sessions. Just enough time to have some silence and peace and to experience what's going on in your body. You know, I think even as an athlete, as a runner, it's quite handy too because you sit in a certain position and all of a sudden you start feeling some muscles that are perhaps tighter than you think or areas that are holding on to more tension. And then that can be pretty informative as well. Two things. First, you've mentioned my most hated household chore of all time, <laughs> washing the dishes. There and you go. I, I, will, I will go to the ends of the earth to distract myself from dishes, um, despite what Dr. Bub says. <laughs> I, I can't do it. I can't Get right do it. in there. <laughs> um, now, it also seems like you have been describing meditation without using the word meditation. Does, does actual meditation factor in here at all? Yeah, I mean, I think I mean, meditation is part of the story. I think for some people, just using the term either really turns them on and they want to be diving into this more. But unfortunately, another half of the group hears that term and it's, it's off-putting. It seems too intense. It's not for them. And so depending on what camp you fall into, I mean, I just call it breathing, right? I mean, everyone can – hopefully everyone's still doing that. Um, you know, we all breathe every day. And a lot of us don't realize that the way we're breathing is actually – queuing up signals that are you know, leading to stress responses. You know, are you a pump handle breather up in your chest, not taking any deeper belly breaths when you're just sitting at your desk? You know, those types of things put your nervous system into a certain state and that can, you know, it's taxing. And so, you know, whether it's doing a yoga class, whether it's doing some simple breath work, for some people it can just be from when they do their running, you know, getting into a good rhythm with their breathing. But just bringing some more awareness to that is a great, you know, first step. Um, and not only on the actual physical performance, obviously on the mental performance side. And, and we actually, you know, one of the experts I interviewed for the book, uh, Dr. Abhimanyu Sud, who's an expert in, in opioids and, and pain medications and pain, talks a lot about how, you know, breath work literally changes how the brain senses pain. And so the pain intensity and pain bothersomeness, which are two 
two key characteristics can actually be altered just by how, how you breathe and with meditation. And that's pretty remarkable when we look at, you know, obviously the, the excessive use of opioids at, at the moment, which is, you know, obviously really sad and, and, and unnecessary. And, and so if people do experience discomfort and pain, I think that's a, a really nice place to start. And if you're just looking for some cognitive benefits, you know, to, to improve your performance at work or, or with your running, then you get a nice side benefit there too. Yeah. And I'm certainly someone who's been a bit more hesitant about meditation over the last couple of years as it's become more and more popular. But, you know, you tell me something's good for cognitive performance and my running performance and, and all of a sudden I'm on board. <laughs> um, you know, you talked a little bit about negative thoughts and negative self-talk earlier, and I'd love to, to talk a little bit more about that and to dive in there. You know, in a sport like endurance running, there's often a lot of negative thinking. I mean, we're dealing with high mileage weeks. We're voluntarily running hard workouts, which is kind of a weird thing for the general population to understand. And then races <laughs> yeah. are probably an exercise in mitigating negative thoughts. Uh, and you spend a good deal of time in the book um, talking about this. And, and you actually mention in your book that the brain naturally defaults to negative thoughts. I'm, are, are you saying there's no hope for us runners? <laughs> are, are we screwed? <laughs> no, I mean, I think obviously from an evolutionary perspective, I think, you know, having those defaulting to negative thoughts was pretty protective. I mean, you know, those are the theories in evolutionary biology that the, the negative thoughts were a way of ensuring that, you know, this area was safe or these people are safe or this food is safe for us to consume. And so, you know, I think running is so attractive to people again, because it does force us to push our boundaries in terms of what we're able to cope with. Um, and I think that idea of resiliency, so in the book we talk about longevity as well, and a lot of the original theories around aging were around oxidative stress and how high amounts of oxidative stress would accelerate aging. And of course, you know, certain reptiles, birds, in the book we talk about one in particular called the naked mole rat, they have the highest amount of oxidative stress, and yet they're one of the oldest living animals. And so you know, the newer theories were saying, well, listen, if you have high oxidative stress, but you have high resilience, a high capacity to clear that, then it's fine, right? It's okay. And so, you know, this is where in terms of from a mental side, you know, being able to, to push yourself, to challenge yourself. So those negative thoughts come in. How do you, how does your attention turn? Does it turn to your breath? Are you able, what do you then focus on in those moments? And I think the nice part for all you know, recreational runners is that transferability of when we get some of these skills, when things go wrong in a race or in a training session and we feel really uncomfortable and maybe in a competition, we all, you know, there's a level of fear there when you can fall back on some of these tools and you get yourself out of these moments that are, that are intense or, or a little frightening, you know, that transfers to the real world in terms of, you know, whether it's work, whether it's family, whether it's these other challenges that come up. And so, I think that's one of the the appeals of exercise too, whether it's lifting weights of this idea of being able to to challenge our edges. And, you know, I think, I think sometimes, and you'd probably see this obviously more than I would, but I think some people who are recreational runners who get into running longer distances, they, they sometimes try to get there too fast, right? They don't build up slowly enough over time. And all of a sudden, when we really exceed that capacity, that's when we can get into injuries and that's when we can get into, you know, and so that, you know, that... Um, connection between being able to push the mind and be able to push the body at the same time, I think is one of the reasons why sport, running, training are so appealing for folks. 
And it's all about how we respond to a lot of that stress as well. And you shared a really interesting anecdote in the book talking about how, you know, the people who are working 70 hours a week and experiencing a lot of stress, the folks who did not view that as stressful actually had none of the the health drawbacks of of all that stress, which I, I just thought was fascinating. They they thought it was, I don't know, fun or, or a challenge or whatever. <laughs> And, I mean, the mindset piece is unbelievable. We see now, you know, in sport, everything's measured. I mean, in life as well, everyone's used to their devices telling them I had a good night's sleep, a bad night's sleep. You know, in sport, we can rate how athletes are recovering. And it's, you know, it's amazing. If you tell an athlete that they're recovering poorly, they run slower. If you tell an athlete they're recovering great, even though, you know, you're fibbing and they're not, they run faster. And so this idea of mindset and how we perceive things and believe things just plays such a massive, massive role. And and not only our performance, but, you know, performance in life as well. So I think that's one of the ones to really continue to work on how we, you know, how we see that because, you know, a sense of humor goes a long way that, you know, study they did in, in runners around those with a smile on their face, they actually had a statistically significant improvement in, in performance time. And so this sort of idea of tricking your brain a little bit of, of you know, of saying, hey, I can handle this, even though the, the discomfort comes on and everything else. The way that we react has a big influence on on the outcome. And again, that idea of transferability to the real world is really fascinating because if we can do that in our running and in our sport, then we're much more likely to be able to do that in life as well. You know, I actually had a hiring manager tell me once that uh, they like hiring runners and, and in particular distance runners because, you know, the people who are getting up at five, six in the morning to get in a hard workout before work, you know, they're the people that are going to be better at work and you know they're going to be able to um give it their all and just have a better suite of mental skills and it was just such an amazing affirmation for me as a runner i was like okay i guess running it can be good for my career <laughs> and, <laughs> absolutely and you see i mean with endurance athletes in general runners obviously included compliance from a nutrition standpoint is is typically through the roof right you, you tell them to do something and they do it and so that's a huge part of of progress as well, because, you know, in a lot of team sports or depending on the athletes, that's not always the case. Right. And even if, even if funds and finances aren't a, a roadblock. So I think that idea of compliance is such a huge part. We know that whether it's nutrition, whether it's training, you know, those who stick to the plan at the end of the year t tend to reap the rewards and, and, you know, beat the competition. So it's, it's definitely a, a hallmark for the endurance crowd. Absolutely. And it's funny that you mentioned smiling as a way to boost your performance because, you know, it is about how you respond to stress. And I know that world marathon uh, record holder Elliot Kipchoge is someone who smiles in races, and he's actually using the latest science research to try to bolster his performance. And of course, you know, we're not going to say that he ran, you know, 201 in the marathon because he was smiling. Of course, a lot of training <laughs> went into that. But, yeah, you know, sure. it's one of those things where it's, likely part of the puzzle it's one piece to that big puzzle and you know it might have given him a couple extra seconds at the end of that race for sure well it's interesting too because you know i haven't teased out in the research but you think to yourself there's potentially obviously a tangible gain for the person smiling but if you're in a competition and you're struggling and inside you're grinding and then somebody comes past you with a big smile on their face i mean the negative impact it has on your competition is pretty substantial as well so that's you know something to consider for you know, maybe some of your listeners who are more on the higher end of performance and are trying to beat the competition because it's a little bit of a, as you know, a bit of a poker game out there sometimes with trying to, you know, let people 
think you're feeling a certain way or, or how you might strategize your race. So I think that's a really interesting uh, tactic as well. Smiling as psychological warfare. In <laughs> there you race. go. I love it. There you go. <laughs> I love it. Um, now, are there different strategies for mitigating negative self-talk depending on the scenario? So whether or not you're maybe running a long run or doing a workout by yourself on a track or you're in a race situation with, you know, some athletes around you. Are there different strategies or or is this all firmly in your head and it doesn't really matter where you are or what you're doing? Well, I mean, I think anyone can can appreciate that if you're sick, tired, run down, it's a lot easier to have a bad day and it's a lot easier to think negative thoughts, right? Whenever we're in those situations where we're just, you know, we only got five hours of sleep or you have long hours and et cetera, stress is, is accumulating. So, you know, in the recovery chapters, we talk about these fundamentals of recovery and the, the, the base of the pyramid when you talk to, again, experts in endurance and, and team sport being you know, nutrition, sleep, and mental emotional stress. So I think when we talk about negative self-talk, we've got to start from the, you know, the fundamentals and the base of the pyramid and say, you know, do you have your nutrition on point for yourself, right, for the individual in front of us? Because depending on your level as a runner, depending on your, your you know, your body weight, your current state of health, it's going to be different. The, you know, the, the ideal personalized intake for that person when we talk about sleep, you know, we touched on that a little bit before and sleep is obviously we see athletes today doing things we'd never dreamed of a decade ago. You know, again, if we stay in the tennis examples, Roger Federer at 37 is winning multiple majors again. And, you know, 10, 15 years ago, if you were over 30, it was that, that was your career done and dusted. And so we see these remarkable feats that we can achieve when we do that. So, you know, getting enough sleep, getting your nutrition on point. And then the mental emotional stress part comes with just sort of the the life load, if you will, which is something that's talked about a lot in team sport now of, you know, you can have an athlete for a certain amount of hours in the day, but when you go home to your life and to your family and to your friends, you know, what's that stress like? Because if there's things there that are really weighing you down, then that's going to impact. So those are, those are the real fundamentals. Your, your training plan then would come next. And that's a great place to start for a lot of people because oftentimes there's going to be some gaps in there, or there's going to be some spots where we can still make some marginal gains, you know? So those athletes that are, you know, they're getting seven hours consistently, but there might be a spot to be able to get seven and a half or build up to eight, or maybe there might be an opportunity on the weekends to add some naps to be able to, you know, increase the weekly sleep time. Sometimes you always think of just how much sleep you can get in a day. And, you know, for a lot of us, you can only get so many hours in a row because of work and life. But, uh, you know, on the weekends, hey, there might be an extra 30, 60, 90 minutes there to start tacking on some, uh, some extra sleep. And, and that recovery piece becomes really important because, you know, some major studies came out recently showing, you know, particularly with respect to endurance training that, you know, frequent illness and even the symptoms of illness, which is really interesting, but frequent illness is incompatible with elite performance. And it's basically because you just miss training days. You know, if there's a certain amount of training days you need, to need, you need to do in a year and your competition needs to do as well, and they do eight or 10 more than you do, your chances of winning are reduced dramatically, right? And so if we're tired, if we're run down, if we're fatigued, those negative thoughts are going to come, but it's also going to be compromising performance. And so that's where this whole notion of, you know, human first or athlete first is let's, let's create a really healthy person that can be robust and resilient. And then that way they can, they can manage that training load 
and uh, you know, from there you really build a good foundation of of those of being in a better position to have more positive thoughts. Um, and beyond that, you know, the example I gave with um, with Serena Williams, which for a lot of people might sound even a bit hokey, of just you know writing down positive affirmations and repeating them, but you know that's a way of of, of taking charge of the inner monologue of of how you're you know, the thoughts that you're having and. You know, like everything, without practice, it's easy for that inner monologue, you know, when we hit periods of stress or hit periods where we plateau or maybe even regress a little bit, that inner monologue can start to take over. And fortunately, as you mentioned, it's often often negative. I love this very holistic approach to performance because I think it, it has to be that way if we really want to get everything out of ourselves and, and out of the sport itself. Um, you know, but back before I had kids and, and I was running a lot more than I am today, I used to schedule a 90 minute nap on the weekend after my long run. And I got in, you know, basically a full sleep cycle and it was an amazing way for me to recover. I always felt so much better after that. And, nice. uh, it's such a powerful testament to how sleep can really help not just your recovery, but how you feel and your mental clarity. And, you know, maybe I, I do want to talk a little bit more about that because, you know, you yeah. talk about how general mental and emotional health is needed for peak performance. And, you know, now we're kind of getting way off base with, with things that runners typically think about when it comes to getting faster or posting new personal bests. You know, it kind of goes beyond sports psychology strategies as well. You know, this isn't an affirmation. We're talking about emotional well-being. And, you know, like, how do you define mental and emotional health? You know, what should runners be focusing on? I mean, again, it's a really fascinating topic and one where if, again, we look at the research around overtraining, you know, there's a great uh, paper a few years back by uh, Paul Larson, who's a exercise scientist here in Canada, supported numerous, you know, uh, Olympic squads and endurance. And, you know, the title of the paper was Athletes Fit But Not Healthy. And so this delineation between building fitness and being, you know, a healthy person and effectively saying that a lot of the symptoms that we would get with overtraining, which again, you know, prominent ones include things like low mood, you know, all those negative thoughts are really the result of, you know, poor diets, typically higher in, you know, sugar and processed foods and, and poor training plan, you know, and so it's sort of a, re a reflection of an athlete in poor health versus, you know, the the title itself, the name of overtraining is almost a bit misleading because it suggests that they just did too much training when really the plan might have not have been as effective, the recovery was likely not as effective, and the nutrition plan they had in place. And so for endurance sport, for any sport, but for endurance sport, again, coming back to those pillars, nutrition, sleep, you know, the, the emotional mental piece is really important. And when it comes to mood and emotions, there's obviously going to be the component that is psychological and in, in origin um, and for myself there's a lot of the work that i do with athletes comes from the biochemical first so this idea of blood glucose control you know if we have athletes will tend to have very good blood glucose control we know that if period if we experience periods of hypoglycemia right low blood sugars that you know you feel tight you feel anxious you, you might feel agitated um, but we also can experience that a little bit when we have hyperglycemia and so one of the interesting things, again, in researching the book was some of the new research around the use of continuous glucose monitors, right? So we, we hook ourselves up to a, a piece of technology, right, that goes in the back of the arm or in the abdomen, and it's measuring your glucose 24 hours a day. And in one of the studies, they, they assessed uh, cyclists for a week, 
And of course, they had 10 sub-elite cyclists, so really fit individuals. And they wanted to see where their glucose control was for that week in terms of their fueling. Because again, classically, in endurance sport, we're always worried about hypoglycemia. And so we want to make sure we have enough fuel on board to be able to, to fuel athletes. And at the end of the week, what they found was that four out of the 10 participants participants spent 70% of the week with their blood glucose in a pre-diabetic to diabetic range. So they were really high blood sugars throughout the week. And so you know, this idea of overfueling can be problematic when we sometimes translate too literally, you know, you mentioned Eliad Kipchoge, you know, what Eliad's fueling with, we say, okay, well, I'm going to fuel with that similar strategy for my race. You know, he might be running at 20, 21 K. I might be running at 14 K, right? It's a totally different, it's a totally different race, right? And so sometimes having a bit too reductionist approach of how we fuel can lead to these states of, of overfueling, you know, taking too many gels if it's not appropriate for you, um, you know, ha- not having the right diet nutrition approach for yourself, that leads to more, you know, inflammation in the body. And that has a huge connection with, with mood, right? It's strongly associated with things like low mood, which can, you know, obviously the negative emotions, negative self-talk. And so again, sort of come back to those pieces as being really key to be able to, to make sure that we have those big rocks in place. You know, there's definitely different strategies people can use, uh, from a sports psychology standpoint, um, to be able to, to improve performance and improve, you know, outlook. But one of the things when we talk about this human first approach is this idea of, okay, do we have the right fueling strategy for yourself? And that's, you know, when people get their blood tests from their doctor, you know, just a GP's visit, things like fasting glucose, you're going to get on there, which is going to give you some insights, right? If it's chronically elevated, then you potentially might be, you know, overtraining or not recovering enough. You might have the wrong fueling strategy. You might not be sleeping enough. Um, things like your A1C, so your three-month average of blood glucose, that also gives you some information. The one that we tend not to get, though, which you get some information using a CGM or a glucose tolerance test, is just how you respond to, a, to, to food, right? If we give you a bolus of glucose, two hours later, how do you respond? And some people with really good fasting glucose, when we actually run these these tests, they actually don't respond as well to this postprandial challenge. And so this might be more for your listeners who are recreational and trying to improve their health and maybe lose some weight when they're when they're doing their running and maybe struggling and wondering like, you know, I'm following the rules here. I'm, I feel like I'm doing everything right, but I'm still not, you know, losing those extra pounds and it's it's impacting my performance and also, you know, I'm not, I'm not getting as the weight loss I want or the, or the health improvement. So that's you know, those three areas are really need to be triangulated to, to be able to assess you know, the, the blood glucose control. And if people struggle with an area of poor health or with some of the, the mindset pieces, then that's a good place to start to, to be able to do some detective work. You know, with you talking about blood glucose and overfueling, it's just so interesting. I'll, I don't think I'll ever forget being at a, a local 5K and, you know, you see everyone finishing and they go to the, the snack table after the race and they're they're loading up with you know, a bagel and a cookie and a banana. And they're talking about refueling. And I just remember these two runners talking about you got to refuel after the race. And you don't need 150 grams of carbohydrate after a 5k race. It does not matter how fast you ran or how long it took you. It is just <laughs> sure. an insane number of carbohydrate that that you simply don't have to replace. And so I, I can very much see that runners can sometimes over rely on 
fueling and refueling and, and just really trying to cram as much uh, food or carbohydrate into their body when it's not always so necessary. I mean, Andy Jones, uh, Professor Andy Jones told a great story. He was part of the Elliot Kachogi's Breaking Two sports science team there to get him ready to go for that uh, test. And he had a friend who was a really elite um, runner, recreational runner. And so he was doing the VO2 max test, Andy was. And he said, you know, come on in. We'll, we'll test you up before we get the uh, pros in. And so he was doing his test and getting up towards, you know, 14, 15, 16 kilometers an hour, 17 kilometers an hour and around there, you know, couldn't keep going, test over, right? You know, the, the elites come in and they're effectively warming up almost at what his top end speed was. And then from there, increasing their increments and their testing. And so it just really goes to show you that, you know, it's it's a totally different level, you know, in terms of, and so, you know, there are definitely things that we can, transferables that we can take from them. And in the book, I talk about that, about, you know, consistency being one of the key ones. I'm sure, you know, I know you talk about that a lot as well, just being consistent with your training, consistent with your nutrition. Sometimes it's not as sexy, you know, it's not as, uh, doesn't have that thrill factor, but that's really what separates a lot of these people. Um, and so transferring those types of fundamentals rather than strictly, you know, how many grams per hour do they use? Because when you're running at 22 kilometers an hour, I mean, it's, it's totally different fueling strategy than if you're running at 12 kilometers an hour, right? Sure. Yeah. The, the demands yeah. are just so very different. Now, Mark, we have talked about so many different strategies for boosting our, our mindset skills and our, our mental skills. Um, you know, everything from positive affirmations and mantras to even meditation or belly breathing. But what do you say to runners who are hesitant about improving their either mindset or mental fitness? Because some of these strategies might seem a little bit too new age, woo woo, spiritual for the tip. And I know that I found myself in this kind of category maybe a few years ago, and I'm, I'm really coming around because I'm just seeing that there's such incredible performance benefit to these. But, you know, how do you get runners to work on their psychology when a big chunk of them might be very hesitant to do so? Another great question. And, you know, in the last chapter of the book, I talk about leadership, and there's a terrific researcher out of the University of Waterloo, uh, Dr. Igor Grossman, who talks about, you know, intelligence versus wisdom. Intelligence being, you know, things like IQ and of course wisdom being our perspective on things and our ability to take a third person's point of view. And in his research, he actually showed that when people are having an interpersonal conflict, you know, your level of intelligence was actually a predictor of how poorly you were in your capacity to reason wisely. That is to take the other person's perspective in the in the argument, in the in the debate, so to speak. And so this sort of circles back to mindset because this idea of if we can start to foster things like, you know, wise reasoning and wisdom, if we can start to force ourselves to look at the problem, not only through our eyes, but through a third party's viewpoint of trying to look at the situation from an outsider's view really helps to be able to see the, the picture, the situation more clearly and can give us oftentimes solutions that we wouldn't naturally come to. You know, it's definitely one in the world of nutrition. Things are pretty heated depending on which direction you go with, you know, whether it's a plant-based, animal-based, and, and all, the, you know, the uh, opinions that fly around online. And so this idea of being able to foster more wise reasoning, so in our ability to be good leaders, and, and again, the transferability of that to, you know, home life with your friends, family, kids, 
work life as well to be able to perform at work is is really high. Um, so I think you know those types of things are really you know impactful, and that it is really training the brain. You know, it's some of these things that can sometimes seem obvious, but unless you actually force yourself to go through some of the practices, whether it's the positive self-talk, um, you know, whether it's the mindfulness and, you know, on the mindfulness front, we talk about, there was a story in the book about a, a golfer, if anyone's familiar with golf, uh, Louis Eustazen back almost 10 years ago now, he was an up and coming golfer, hadn't won a big tournament, was always there on Sunday, but could never quite close the deal. And so he started working with a British sports psychologist named Carl Morris. And, you know, golf is, it's probably similar to running in a sense of you've got a lot of time to think between shots a bit like in running where there's, you know, if you're competing, there's a lot of time to think about what you can and can't do or, or what you're able to do. And for better and or just, worse, <laughs> for better or worse, you know, Ustazen just couldn't get the job done. And so he said, look, I want you to take a Sharpie pen and on your left hand, of your golf club, you're going to draw a big red spot. And on Sunday, you know, he was leading by four strokes in the, in the British Open, historic golf course, all these legends, you know, superstars behind him. The classic scenario where the, the young person falters and fails down the stretch. And he, you know, Carl told him, look, before you hit every shot, the only thing you're focusing on is that little red spot. That's all that matters. You focus on that red spot. And that's what he did. You know, he put all his attention into this one thing that was able to block out all the noise and the expectation and everything else. And he had the, you know, the, the day of his life, he won by seven shots, his first major. And, you know, had he not practiced that, it's not something you can just flip on like a light switch. You know, it's, it's things that we all need to practice. And I think, you know, whether you do that in your training running, whether you have other practices that, you know, you do to foster that. But again, for physical performance, it can be a game changer. And it, the nice part is it, again, transfers to the, to the rest of life as well. How important is repetition in training to master some of these mental skills? Because I think a lot of runners who have formal experience in the sport, whether they were on a cross-country team or a track and field team and maybe competed at the college level, they might read a sports psychology book and in hindsight recognize a lot of the skills have already been developed in themselves. And, and I, I just wonder, is there practical uh, usefulness to just getting really good at being a consistent runner and training really well. And, and just through that act of repetition, you start to develop some of these mental skills. I mean, I think that's one of the things why running is one of the ways why running is so appealing is that it, it almost forces you into some of these boxes, right? In terms of the, the, the longer nature of, of exercise bouts, um, the fact that you inherently have to focus on your breathing to get into a rhythm and to, to run um, more successfully are forcing people to be a bit more mindful. You know, you have to think about your body and how you're, you know, if you have seven or eight times your body weight coming down on your feet, you, you've got to be cognizant of how that feels and, and how your body feels through, uh, you know, through your gait and stride frequency. So, you know, I like activities or things that can sort of steer people towards some of these things without them having to always cognizantly do them if you know for especially for those folks that don't naturally gravitate towards those things um you know one of the big areas in the book that we touch on in, in sport when we talk about the psychology is this idea of emotions and how those really drive performance and you know you often hear this term harness your emotions and you know that's can be a little bit misleading but 
you know, the idea that emotions drive behavior is, is, is fascinating. Our sports psychologist at Canada Basketball, Peter Jensen, he's a renowned sports psych in Canada. He's really quick to point out that, you know, even if you think you're a really logical being, 90% of what you're doing, the decisions you're making are based off of emotions. And he talks about how, you know, when we're first born, imagery is the first language. And that's why, you know, that's why marketers use these kind of things to influence us. And so I think the emotions can be a big piece for runners as well. You know, trying to take charge of those emotions or use some imagery to be able to get you over some of those challenges, get you through those spaces in the training or the race where you do struggle or that, you know, that uh, you're pushing your, your capacity beyond what you're capable of. You, you need to tap into some of these things because those are the, the way that the brain and body you know, really respond to things and can kind of override that central governor that's trying to tell you, okay, well, hold back. You don't, don't go that fast. You know, don't, that, that's too much. And so I think that's a, a big aspect of it on that emotional side. And so, you know, I think it's nice when people have a certain pathway or plan that they can follow for some of these things. So some drills can be nice, but you know, in some sports it is a bit baked into the cake of being able to develop some of these qualities. So that's kind of a nice, a nice side, side benefit as well. Great. I love when running is, is supported as, as a way to improve mental health, just, just the activity itself. It's so exciting for me. Well, Mark, thanks so much for sharing your expertise and some of the lessons from your book, Peak. It's really interesting. And uh, while I admittedly have, <clears throat> excuse me, have only been able to get through about half of it, I can't wait to finish it because you know, I, I'm so interested in things like the microbiome and sleep hygiene. And so those are areas that I not only want to improve for my own running, but and, and also my clients, but also, you know, just for life, you know, let's train for life so that we can be the best parents we can be and, you know, the best members of our communities. And I, I think there's uh, a lot of value in your book. So thanks again. Amazing. Listen, I appreciate you taking the time, Jason. It was a lot of fun. Hey, it's Jason one more time. I hope you enjoyed this discussion on mental fitness, mindfulness, and psychological health with Dr. Mark Bubbs. Be sure to check out the Strength Running site for details on Dr. Bubbs, his book, and resources and links that we discussed on today's episode. And today's podcast sponsor is Tagalong, and they're bridging the gap between professionals and the rest of us. This is a fascinating company that's bringing you to elite athletes, letting you train right next to them as they give you feedback right then and there in real time. Tagalong is essentially in-person coaching with a professional or Olympic-level athlete, I think an experience many of us would treasure for a very long time. And they have more than 50 pro athletes in six different sports. Uh, from running, cycling, and triathlon, and a lot more. And their athletes include some you might recognize, hurdler Jared Eaton, Olympic 800-meter runner Nick Simmons, and Olympic steeplechaser Aisha Prout-Lear. If you're looking for an edge and want to learn from the best, Tagalong can help you get there. Go to tagalong.pro slash podcast to see how it works, or you can download the app on the Apple App Store. Find, hire, and train with a professional athlete with Tagalong, at tagalong.pro slash podcast. Thanks for hanging out with me today, and I hope you enjoyed the topic of mental fitness. If you want me to devote more time to sports psychology, go ahead and shoot me an email at support at strengthrunning.com with your topic ideas, any struggles that you're having, or just any feedback that you might have on this kind of an issue. I'm always listening. Until next time, runners. <laughs>